Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, everybody. I am with my beloved wife, Wendy. Hi, it's so good to be with you. We are delighted to be with you and answer your questions. We're getting lots of good questions, and we know that this episode if you listen to the last episode, it ended with a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. So we're going to revisit that question and go into a little more detail. It was, a, I think, a very important question, and we just didn't have time to give it a thorough answer. So we will revisit that in just a minute. But before we do that, I wanted to share with you guys, we are getting close to our cutoff date for our pilgrimage to Mexico City which is October 18th to the 23rd. And we are going to be together at the Tilma in front of the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on the feast day of St. John Paul II. It is an amazing experience. I've been to Mexico City twice before, once to give talks, uh, the other time to lead a pilgrimage. And this is the second time I'll be leading the pilgrimage. Jen Settle is also going to be a leader on the pilgrimage, Jason Clark, Bill Howard, all from the Theology of the Body Institute team. We're going to have days together that will, it's not exaggeration, I'm not just saying this, it's really real. These days together will change your life. Going on a pilgrimage together, diving into the way the Theology of the Body illuminates our faith, it changes lives. It's, it's a way of just retreating from the normal day-to-day and immersing yourself in another culture, immersing yourself in some way in another time period. We're going 500 years back to the history of the appearance of Our Lady of Guadalupe and how Mary, 500 years ago, transformed a culture of death into a culture of life. How? Through the iconography of this tilma which is nothing other than a revelation of the theology of the body. And what do we mean by that? How our bodies reveal the mystery of the divine. That's how the tilma transformed the culture of death into a culture of life. That's why the mystery of Our Lady of Guadalupe and all that it represents is so important for our time today. We live today in a culture of death, a culture of the image, a culture that the imagery of the culture promotes lust and death. It's not unlike the Aztec culture of 500 years ago in that regard. And so the transformation is the same, to untwist the distortions of those images to build a culture of love and life. We transform a culture of lust and death into a culture of love and life by redeeming the imagery of the culture. That's what this pilgrimage is all about. If you are interested, please go to tobpilgrimages.com to learn more. If you're not able to join us in Mexico City, October 18th to the 23rd, maybe you want to come with us to the Holy Land, February 15th to the 25th of 2020. We just learned recently that Father Thomas Loya, dear friend of mine and fellow TOB missionary, will be joining us on this pilgrimage He is also an expert in the iconography of the church. So to be able to travel to 
the Holy Land with a Byzantine priest to shine for us the light of the East on the iconography in the Holy Land, that will be a special, special treat. Again, you can learn more at tobpilgrimages.com. Wendy, would you be willing to reread that cliffhanger question from last time? I would. I would indeed. And we'll pick up where we left off. You know, the podcast before that, you were the one hanging off a cliff. Oh, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And now we left, in the next podcast, we left our questioner hanging on a cliff. We have a theme. So sorry about that. So for the next episode, Wendy, you have to go jump off a cliff. I'm not into cliff jumping, no. I know that about you. That's right. Okay. So here is our question, and I'll just summarize. It was from a woman who said that she had made mistakes in the area of sex and sexuality. She's in her 30s now, and she has a lot of shame about her past. And even as she's desiring a holy marriage in the future, she's worried that a man she would want to marry might be upset when he would hear about her past. And so her question was, first for Christopher, how did you go about sharing about the painful parts of your past? And then Uh, Is it necessary to tell all? And then asking me, did I have to work through disappointment or concerns because of this? So that was the question, and we had begun to answer that in the last episode. You shared uh, about how I was already somewhat familiar with your past from the very first day we met because you were sharing your testimony and how the Lord had really opened your heart to His love through the pain of that sexual relationship you had been in. So it was not a secret to me that always knew that about you, that that was in your past. And then you were also sharing a little bit more about a day when it was a a personal conversation just between the two of us, not you giving a presentation, but but talking about this in relation to how it affected us and me personally. We were at a point in our relationship where I knew this needed to be addressed. And we, we had a pretty clear sense that we were going to be husband and wife, and it was appropriate for us to be sharing our lives at this level. And I remember we were going through that photo album, and there were pictures, four years worth of pictures from this dating relationship I had been in, and, and I put the book aside and I said, I said, Wendy, I, I know you know that I did not save myself for, for my wife. And... Uh, I think we just need to to look at this honestly and, and talk about it. And the rationale I had come up with in my mind was, and as I said to you that day, I could imagine that you would love who I've been for the last five years of my life because I've been trying to live a holy life. But I wouldn't expect you to love who I was back then. And I will never, ever forget the look on your face and your response, which was... Well, I think I was sort of surprised that you would even propose that. And my sense was that all of your past is part of who you are. And I was already sensing just the gift of loving you from childhood as we're seeing, you know, mm-hmm. the pictures in mm-hmm. the photo album. To think I'd have to sort of separate these years of your life and reject those, and then I can come back and start loving again just sounded ridiculous. Yeah. And I, I said, you, you can't divide your life like that. I, I love you. That means you, your, your whole 
story, your whole self. That's who I love. That's yeah, and I, rem- I remember you said, I'm not happy that those things happen, but I'm mostly, I'm not happy about it because I know it's caused you so much pain. Mm-hmm. So those two things, I want to look at both of them. Number one, I want to look at what you said, that you can't divide your life in mm-hmm. two like that. And you don't just love who I've been for the last five years, you said, but I I love you. And right in that moment, I remember looking deeply in your eyes and there was just, there was love flowing Mm. out of you to me, a love that I had never even imagined was possible. As I had said to you just a few moments before, Mm. I said, I could imagine that you'd love who I've been in the last five years, but not who I was back then. So what am I doing there? I'm saying love is conditional, number one. Mm-hmm. I'm saying I'm only lovable if I'm good. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm saying there's no way you could love me in my brokenness, and I don't expect you to. And you, you like interrupted that wrong-headed notion of love and said, you can't split your life in two like that. I love you. And when you said that, I love you, that word you... I felt these parts of my life that I, in my own thinking, had ruptured mm-hmm. to make myself lovable. And I put that in quotes. I felt those two parts of my life coming back together. And I felt like myself for the first time. Like I realized your love was giving me permission to be my broken self that I don't have to pretend otherwise to be loved. I don't have to try to erase that part of my life to be lovable, that y- you loved me and, my, and the me that I am included that. And you weren't happy about that. But as you said, mostly because you knew how much pain it had caused me. Mm-hmm. That was an incredibly healing moment. When I look back at my whole life, it's one of the most important moments of my life, the realization that love is real. It's real. And this questioner is is confessing, and understandably so, as all of us are in our broken humanity, we're afraid of rejection. In other words, we're afraid that if somebody really knew me and all my brokenness, that person would say, I can't love you. It's a real fear. And my experience, the reason I thought I had to split my life up like that was because I had had experiences of being rejected. I had had experiences of people who saw my brokenness and turned the other way. Uh, You were the first person I encountered who saw my brokenness, knew it, and said, I love you. And so I just want to, I want to hold out to this listener and I want to hold out to all our listeners that this love is real. It really is real. You don't have to do anything to be loved. You don't have to erase part of your life to be loved. You don't have to pretend part of your life didn't exist. You don't have to wear masks to be loved. That you are loved. The love I was feeling from you, Wendy, I felt it was coming from heaven through you. And it was a divine love. And it was one of my first experiences in life of a divine love flowing through another human being to reach me in a way that reintegrated me, reunited me with my own past, reunited me as 
a person who has gifts and also has brokenness and sinfulness. And I would say to anyone out there who who says, well, I just don't want to share this because I'm not sure this person would love me and I don't want to lose this person. And this, I'm speaking here to a single person. She's, she said she's single and she hopes one day to be married, but you know she's afraid to share this part of her because she's afraid she wouldn't be loved there. I, I want to say to you, you are worth being loved there. And if you are afraid you wouldn't be loved there, then I don't think that's somebody you want to marry because you'll take that fear with you into the marriage because you'll know for the rest of your life that that happened. And if that's a nagging doubt in the back of your mind, would this person still be with me if this if the person knew this? I do know. I mean, because of the work that I do, there are couples who share all kinds of intimate details of their lives and their stories with me. And I'm thinking of a particular couple where this became a real painful, painful point in their marriage. Years into their marriage, it came out that one of them had had a very a very promiscuous sexual past. And it caused more of a wound in the marriage because that person had not been honest up front about those experiences. So, gosh, I, I want to tell this person, you're loved, you're lovable, and if you're meant to be married, you're meant to be married to a man who will love the real you with all of your gifts and with all of your flaws, with all of your sanctity, and with all of your brokenness and sinfulness. Uh, this person, if you're meant to be married, you're, I believe you're meant to be married to a man who will love the real you. That's what you taught me, Wendy, and that's what I like to hold out to people because it so transformed me. I want other people to know that love. Mm. I think, too, what you're sharing is helping listeners who've had that kind of sense of, well, I'd, I'd never want to be with someone who hadn't saved him or herself, you know, who've kind of maybe put that up as a requirement and haven't really explored what mercy looks like yeah. and yeah. Yeah, what, so what a gift that a necessary gift that is for a healthy marriage, no matter what your past. Yeah. So I I hope that that attitude is also being challenged, you know, of one of of judgment. And if that has been present in a relationship, uh, anybody that's listening, you know, if if you could go back and and ask for forgiveness for that harshness or that judgment or rejection Mm. rejection of the other, to realize if the Lord extends His mercy, who are we to say, well, you're not worthy? Mm. You know, that's very sad. So I I will say this, because she did ask if I had to work through any disappointment or concerns, and I can say this, that was... Absolutely, my reaction to, you know, that's not a mistelling of the story of what you shared. I do think that it was learning some of the details about your relationship. They caused, you know, some pain in my heart. Yes, pain for you, but also pain, kind of the pain of recognizing how 
twisted sexuality yeah. can be, and yeah. that's just a painful, painful thing to look at. Very painful. Um, so I don't want to make it sound like there was zero struggle in my heart. That would be an exaggeration. Um, but I also shared those things with you, and I am grateful that you were not, you know, shocked by my having some struggles just accepting the new information sometimes. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of our relationship for which I'm very grateful was that other times I would sort of have questions come up, you know, later. Like, I wonder, you know, this is something I don't really know about and I would like to ask about. And I, I always felt like there was an openness in you to answer my new questions, that it didn't make you angry that somehow I would bring up the past again, but that you sort of seem to just understand that I was wondering about something and that it was far more peaceful to bring the question out and have it answered than it would be just to kind of try to stuff that question down or put it away. So thank you for that and your openness to my questions and your trust in my love that my needing to process or think about things didn't equal a rejection of you. So thank you. Thank you for your mercy because that's what allowed me to share those details mm-hmm. because I knew I knew your love. I knew your love for me in those places. And I do think you brought up the most important point of this entire question, which is mercy. I think it's the number one ingredient of a successful marriage and any human relationship. And as you said, Wendy, if, if the Lord is willing to sh- extend that mercy, why wouldn't we be? And I know our broken humanity can get in the mix there and make it very difficult. And forgiveness is not cheap. It doesn't come easily often. But what is marriage? Marriage is the vocation in which we are called to love one another as God loves. And if a person is not able to show you mercy, it's the same thing as saying that person is not really capable right now of loving me as God loves. None of us are in our own strength. The fact that you showed me that mercy was a testimony to the history of your life in which you had allowed that mercy and love into your own heart. Mm -hmm. You can't give what you don't have. We're, We're fragile. We are fragile human beings. And the only way, the only way to love another as we are called to love is to open our fragile humanity to divine love and let that divine love into those fragile places So I encourage this listener, God bless you, you dear 30-something questioner, in those places where you feel shame, let the Lord's love into those places, in those places where you're afraid of rejection, let the Lord's love into those places. And I'll even suggest two stories from the New Testament that I would invite you to pray into and pray through. The first would be the woman at the well. And the second would be the woman caught in adultery. And pay attention to how merciful Christ the bridegroom is to these women who have sexual histories, just as you do. And imagine that you are that woman, and you are confronting Christ, and he is looking at you with such tender, tender love. The one line in that scene of the woman caught in adultery that I'd invite you to spend some time in prayer with It says, Jesus was alone with the woman. Place yourself there, alone with Jesus, when all those accusing voices have fled, all those voices that incite that shame and fear. 
and be alone with Jesus and let him speak to you. He's your true bridegroom. He's the bridegroom who knows you through and through and loves you, the real you, through and through. Bless you. We're going to move on to another question. That was, wow, that was, that was a lot spanning two episodes, but I think it was worth taking mm. the time on that. Yes. Here's a question. The person says, he or she, I don't know, is a TOB participant. So maybe someone who came, came to, to one a of course, the courses. Probably. This participant says, so much of my life is secular. I love TOB and all our faith stands for. All my friends know I'm a devout Catholic who stands for everything the church teaches, but being immersed in so many secular circles has led me to knowing and loving many different people in different walks of life. I have not been asked yet, but I'm nervous for the day that a very good friend invites me to a same-sex wedding. What do I say? How can I treat that situation with love and respect? Bless you, dear anonymous questioner. There's much, much to be said here that we don't have time for in uh, you know, just a short podcast like we do. We try to keep it to 30, 35 minutes. Sometimes we go a little longer than that. But I want to refer you to where I do give a much more in-depth answer to these questions, which is the chapter on same-sex issues in my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. We'll put a link to it in the show notes there so you can have direct access to it. But just some food for thought right now. It's for you a hypothetical situation, but for many it's not hypothetical at all. Sometimes it's even a family member who is in a same-sex relationship and says something like, if you really loved me, you would come to my wedding. If you really loved me, you would support this lifestyle that I've embraced. Here we are confronted with some really hard realities. Now, let me back up. Number one, Jesus attended the events of what you could consider public sinners, right? He came to these parties. He came to these gatherings. He came to these meals where there were there was clearly uh, the reputation of the people there in public was they were public sinners so much so that Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of being uh, you know he who is he? he if he were a prophet he would know how sinful this woman is or if if he were a righteous man he would know that he's dining with sinners why does he dine with sinners so there is not some line in the sand that says in any given circumstance, you could not attend a ceremony if it were clear, as would be clear with Jesus, that you are not there to support or endorse the sin, right? So there's the distinction. Jesus went to these celebrations, but he didn't celebrate the sin. He went there as a light in the darkness. He went there as a witness to the true, the good, and the beautiful, so I could imagine a situation in which, for the good of, there might be many goods that are, are honored and protected by showing up at such a ceremony, so long as it is clear that you are not supporting the idea that two people of the same sex could be married. And again, for those who might be listening, maybe somebody recommended this podcast to you and you may not understand the church's teaching in this regard, and it can sound so judgmental, it can sound so unloving. There are sound, good reasons for the church's teaching that only a man and a woman can be married. 
please, I beg of you, if you have those larger questions, please spend some time with my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, where in a very nuanced way, in an in-depth way, I unfold the true, the good, and the beautiful reasons behind the church's teaching here. What does love demand? Sometimes, sometimes love demands a division, a taking a stand that causes a division. That would be the better way to say it. And we have lines from Jesus like this. Do not think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. There will be division between a father and a child, between relatives, between friends, for those who are faithful to me. The world does not jump up and down and leap with joy at the proclamation of the hard truths of the gospel. And we must be faithful witnesses to those. And so I would say to you, if you are capable of being a faithful witness to those hard truths and still being in attendance at such a gathering to be a light in that place, then it could be okay. But it may be the case that in a given situation, the only way you can be a faithful witness to the truth of what marriage is, is to decline the invitation. Even if that causes some ruffling of feathers, that might be, in a given situation, what love invites you to do. Do you think that it takes sort of unique understanding of that situation in order to make that decision? Yes, there are so many variables mm-hmm. in, in a given situation. I don't think we do justice to the complexities of relationships and given circumstances to say, in every uh, example of, of this, it would be absolutely wrong to attend. What would be absolutely wrong in every circumstance would be to bless this union. Right. What would, would be to endorse this union. So if it were indeed certain that your presence there would be perceived by most or all as an endorsement, then that might be an indication not to be there. But again, look at Jesus. It seemed to certainly to the Pharisees that he was endorsing their behavior by being there. But Jesus knew for darn sure he wasn't endorsing their behavior by being there. So even if there's misunderstanding on that side, it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And that's why these are so complex. These situations are very complex and you have to look at yeah, I would have to know all the complexities of this given situation to give a, a more complete Yeah, response. something that just blessed me about the question was how the questioner said, all my friends know I'm a devout Catholic who stands for everything the church yeah, teaches. Yeah, see, I forgot that I in my answering of the question. That's, that's a really a beautiful thing is, to say yeah. that you have these friendships, that people know this about you. It's a, it's a sign that you already are a light. Yes, amen to that. And I think that's awesome. So that's what I wanted to add. Yeah, and when we talk about being a light, you know, we don't we don't mean at all like you have the light and you are the (laughs) light, and you. I mean, you've you've learned yourself in in all these relationships you have, which I'm sure are beautiful relationships in many many ways. You've learned what a gift they are to you. Mm -hmm. They have light to share with you. When we have this idea that we have all the answers and the rest of the world is is just going to hell in a uh, what's the expression hell in a handbasket is I that think the expression so, yeah <laughs> um, I got was getting that mixed up with the poopy creek one <laughs> um, won't go there and in, in other words Jesus was a light in such a way that was inviting never judgmental or you know who he was most judgmental with or in judgmental might not be the right word but the who he was the harshest with was the people who said, what are you doing at those parties? Yeah. 
So anyway, we'll leave it at that for our answer to that one. Okay. We have an anonymous question again. During the marital embrace, are face-to-face positions more moral than non-face-to-face ones? So again, uh, I'm going to refer these questioners or this questioner to my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. Forgive me for sounding like a broken record here, but it is my Q&A book, and this is our Q&A podcast. So go to the show notes where I get into more of the, uh, shall we say, nitty gritties of answers to questions like this. But here is kind of the bottom line on that question. The goal of the marital embrace is personal communion, personal communion, a communion of persons. And, you know, there's a a story here in Catholic folklore. We even, we use the expression, the missionary position of the marital embrace, which means face to face. Why is this called the missionary position? As the story goes, the missionaries who had come to native tribes to bring the gospel found that many of these couples in these tribes were not uniting face to face. And so the missionaries encouraged a more personal approach, hence the missionary position. Now, this is not to say that any position of the marital embrace is in and of itself morally wrong. There may be all kinds of physical reasons, um, for, you know, one position being favored over another. But whatever it might be, there are certain dispositions in our own hearts that we bring to the marital embrace that could, based on a certain non-face-to-face approach, end up being impersonal and create a distance between the two or foster a kind of impersonal attitude about the marital union, and that is what is to be avoided. I would put it this way, a personal intimacy is possible in any posture or position a couple might have in their marital union, but there are certain positions that foster that and can lead to it more readily, more intimately. I think we'll leave it at that. And again, I refer you to my book where I get into the get into the nitty gritties. And if you know what movie I'm referencing there, you can let me know. <laughs> I just want to say something about that book yes, too, please. which grew out of your work in marriage preparation yes. uh, over 20 years ago, although it has been recently updated, where you know so many people coming to the church for marriage who really didn't have necessarily a knowledge of Catholic teaching and the vision of marriage were asking very honest questions and it was their questions initially that caused that book to come about and yeah i was getting these nitty-gritty questions and i thought you know the subtitle of that book is answers to your honest questions about catholic teaching and i was really grateful for those honest questions these are questions on people's hearts and if we don't have the courage to answer these nitty-gritty questions well we're going to take those questions elsewhere and chances are we won't get a very truthful answer Mm -hmm. so my dear brothers and sisters on that note we're going to wrap up this episode we can't do the work that we do at the theology of the body institute unless there are people who believe in what we're doing and are willing to be our patrons so even at five dollars a month 
on your credit card. That goes a long way to help us do the work that we do. Thank you to our patrons out there. We have people paying us $5 a month. We have people who offer us $100 a month. Thank you for that support. It allows us to reach people around the world. And if you are a patron, as the patrons already know, you get exclusive formation from yours truly and other TOB experts in the theology of the body. Lots of perks and gifts and ongoing formation we offer our patrons. You can learn more about that in the show notes. One more thing I want to say. There was a book, not just my Q&A book, but uh, Greg Popcheck and Lisa Popcheck wrote a book called Holy Sex. For those nitty-gritty questions, that's a great resource as well. Holy Sex by Greg and Lisa Popcheck, and we'll put that in the show notes too. Do not forget, my brothers and sisters, you are an unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. We are delighted to being to be <laughs> we are delighted to being with you. We <laughs>